You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I'm Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership and Marketing at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and you're about to listen to the RHISAC Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. I hope you had the chance to download and listen to the last episode of the RHISAC Podcast. If you did, you would have heard the first half of a terrific interview with Ben Vaughn, CISO at Hyatt. RHISAC board member and 2022 CISO of the year. We split it into two segments, the second of which is on this episode. You don't have to listen to them in order, of course, but if you haven't listened to that one, you probably should. Now back to this episode, I will also be joined by another CISO, Dave Stapleton of CyberGRX. CyberGRX is a great supporter of the RHISAC and one of our associate members. You heard me wax almost poetic about third-party risk a couple episodes ago, and I'm going to do it again today. According to CyberGRX, 60% of all retail security incidents come from third parties. Dave and I will talk about how to evaluate third parties well with the sheer volume of incoming suppliers retailers face and the pressure to get them onboarded quickly. And then finally, we'll be joined by the RHI SAC's own cyber threat intel analyst and writer, Lee Clark, for the briefing. As he does every other episode, Lee will give us a summary of recent threats and trends. As always, please let us know what's on your mind. Shoot me an email at podcast at rhisac.org, or if you're a member, find me on Slack or Member Exchange. My conversation with Ben Vaughn, CISO at Hyatt, was really framed by Hyatt's six guiding principles of cybersecurity. But that led us from everything to how cybersecurity is an extension of Hyatt's overall purpose of care to the importance of diversity in cybersecurity. If you haven't listened to it yet, do check it out. We got to just four of those six principles. But now, here's the second half of that conversation with Ben that gets to the remaining two principles, and that's not all. Uh, so that was, believe it or not, only four of the six guiding principles you, uh, you told us about. Number five, you said, was stay close. It's a hard job. You walk a knife's edge. Like we said earlier, you have an enemy, somebody who wants to do you harm. And that weighs on you. It's hard. The way that we can get through is to know one another mm-hmm. and, to, and to be close to one another. That's also the way we can exceed. You know, our adversary, they know each other. They go on smoke breaks together. They go to baby showers. For them, often I think that's an operational advantage because they can they can work together so well on the activities that they want to engage in, whether that's deploying ransomware or you know theft of, of secrets or whatever. If you think about a group of threat actors of any kind, whether it's e-crime or state-sponsored or, or anything like that, I've always had the feeling that they know each other. Well, and how can how can we defend ourselves against them? To me, an important part of that is knowing each other to stay close, not just to treat this like a job, 
that's how we get through the hard days, but also how I think we win um, when we're stacked up against those people who wish us harm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the perception in the outer world is that these threat actors are individual operators sitting in their basement in a hoodie. But in reality, these are collectives, these are businesses, these are, you know, people sitting in cubicles, chatting at the water cooler, um, heating up last night's leftovers in the in the uh, kitchenette microwave. I mean, these are people, just as you said, who have relationships with each other. Uh, and so we have to do the same on our side of it. It's absolutely true. You know, you'll see periodically in, you know, a Mandiant blog about an intrusion that they had investigated. They'll periodically tie back. They'll say, well, the threat actor disappeared on this national holiday. Oh. <laughs> and you go, oh, okay. That's a clue that, you know, these aren't, this isn't just a, um, a fly by night operation, like you said, people in the basement with hoodies, that this is a more organized endeavor. Um, and, and I think it often is. Lots changed since I was a kid. And I think one of the things that's changed since I was a kid is that this has become an operational art, if you're talking about state-sponsored activities, or a large-scale business, if you're talking about e-crime. And there's no reason to expect a business to operate in the way you might imagine from watching movies or television. Uh, the sixth and final, and I don't know if you saved the best for last, but it's certainly on brand. The Hyatt Way was the final guiding principle you, you mentioned. What What is that? What is the Hyatt Way? You know, I learned this phrase probably a year into my time at this wonderful company from someone I look up to um, and whose presence in my life I value deeply, a colleague of mine. And she had said to me, she just sort of offhandedly said when we were talking about something, she said, well, that's not the Hyatt way. And I said to her, well, what's the Hyatt way? And she said, the Hyatt way is the less expedient, more expensive solution to a problem that we wish a company would do for us if we were customers of that company. And I, I use it all the time because she was so right. That is the Hyatt way. That is something that we just do because that's part of care. And so when we're thinking about doing a deployment of some kind, we're turning on DMARC or blocking zip files in, in, in an incoming email, whatever, you know, those are just examples, but let's, let's do those things the Hyatt way. Let's take the care to communicate with our colleagues and give them detailed documentation on how to, handle that change and take time to explain to them why we're doing it because that's the way we wish people would do that change for us. That's really terrific because it, it takes it away from being a transactional type of relationship and more relationship building. It's such an important part of everything that, that, that is Hyatt. Um, right. That's great. Turning to um, potentially a little drier topic, you did mention cyber insurance before. And uh, so I, I'm assuming that's something that you've had some uh, fairly recent, hopefully not too painful experience with. But uh, can you get us, give us your perspective? I know this is something that's on top of mind for, for many of our members. little perspective from your side of things on what the insurance market's like now, how it's changed over the last couple of years, because it is something that's had some, some change recently. Insurance is one of the fa my favorite parts of my job. <laughs> It really is. 
Um, it was something that I knew very little about uh, when I came to Hyatt almost seven years ago. And the risk management team at Hyatt took the time to explain all of the ins and outs of this industry to me. And it's something that the team and I really enjoy every year working on. And I think every year we, we spend a lot of time preparing for our insurance renewal. Um, this year, um, our experience in our renewal was that the insurance market had been very hard last year because I think we all saw that there were pretty substantial losses in cyber insurance policies that had been written by underwriters. And um, when you have a, a, an environment where there's a lot of losses, you'll see premiums rise uh, to, co to compensate for that, fill up that lake, uh, if you will, of, of premiums and premium funds. We have seen and been advised that that market has softened a little bit. And I think we have experienced at least We've experienced that to some extent this year uh, in the renewal that we just completed. Well, that's good. Um, obviously, you can't opine or talk about your own rates, but with you know, there's there's keeping the rates themselves low, uh, but then there's also stability, so you know what you're going to pay from year to year. What tips do you have for that? And and are you seeing uh, some some positive moves in that side of things as well? So I think for us, when I say that insurance is one of my favorite parts of my job, there's a couple reasons for that. And one reason for that is it's a great opportunity for a third-party assessment of your security program because underwriters are really betting on, on you. And so there's, a, there's an opportunity for you to show these folks show and tell about your security program. Again, not to juke the stats, but to show them the good and the bad. And then in the rates that you're paying in the trend line for those rates year over year, to make a determination about what interested third parties outside your company think about your security program. So we think about this as... Um, an opportunity. Yeah, it, it absolutely is an opportunity to know what others outside might think about your security program. Right, because you can pay good money for, for services like that throughout the year, but this is a great opportunity to, to just get it rated on a regular basis. The proof is in the price tag. <laughs> right. So what tips would you give um, others as they enter into this process that they probably don't love as much as you do? Any advice? Yeah, a few things. First is to work with your broker to find underwriters that are interested in your type of risk, whether it's hospitality or, or retail or um, transportation or, or anything else, it's to go see the underwriters. Don't just do a phone call with them. When I went and saw our underwriters in Bermuda and in London, they remarked to me that most people don't come visit them in person. That's an important part of relationship building as well. And then I think one of the most important things that we do in our insurance presentation every year is to tell a cohesive story about our security program and to tell the truth about where we succeed and where we do not succeed as much, where we need to improve still. 
to a certain extent, I think sometimes there's like a Jedi mind trick game going on where folks show up, um, they're talking to insurance underwriters and they say, everything is amazing and nothing bad will ever happen. And of course, that's not believable. Well, I think that the underwriters might get a presentation like that and have an expectation that now they start to wonder. Well, okay. And isn't it so much better if they don't find the problem, but that you say, hey, we already know about this and we're working on it? That, that's right. So one of the things that we do is we dissect an incident from the prior year, um, every year in our presentation. We, talk, we tell the truth about the incident, how it unfolded, and then we detail every step we took to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And I think that that uh, I, I do have an understanding from various underwriters that that is still a, um, a novel approach. And I, I did want to share it because I think it's it's meaningful to everyone. It's also meaningful to Hyatt because if premiums go down globally, they'll also go down for us. We might have to do a deeper dive on that for our members at some point. I know people, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll talk it up. So, you know, just broadly now looking at the ahead at the future, whether it's cyber or whether it's the end of the hospitality industry, do you see anything crazy happening or, you know, get out your crystal ball here and predict the future. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll ask one leading question first, and I have an ulterior motive for this. I've been uh, chatting, um, now that we're part of the CyberWire network, uh, there's a bunch of other podcasts that are part of our, uh, part of the network that I'm meeting these other hosts. I was talking to Maria Varmazis, who's the host of T-Minus, a new podcast about the space industry. Um, she has a cybersecurity background, uh, but it's not about cybersecurity and space. It's just broadly about space. And she wanted me to to ask some of our hospitality members, and since I have you on the spot, are there any plans to start developing properties for either business or tourism purposes in outer space? I'm not authorized to speak about any confidential matters involving space hotels. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so. <laughs> I don't. I don't know, but uh, I hope so. I hope in my life I get to see a space hotel. That would be cool. It's a great thing to think about. It. <laughs> I I would like to see the one in Antarctica. I referred to well, uh, earlier. Yes, as well. that's that's another principle. But so, what else in your crystal ball do you have that uh, you can tell us about in the future? Um, I, I think in terms of our field, um, the trend line that I have seen for the last seven years is cybersecurity companies producing products that can substantially reduce the risk of events happening in the area that that vendor is participating. That we can squeeze off large amounts of risk by finding the technology that will solve your problems and then implementing it completely to push all the buttons. And I think we should expect that trend line to continue because you have, this is a game of human ingenuity versus human ingenuity. And the capital markets are putting, directing a lot of money to these security companies. They're, they're bigger. There's more staff at these companies than there is in the threat actor world. And that just means that there's more brain power on one side than the other. And I think um, security teams can leverage that and should. On the other side, um, you know, what my crystal ball says is that security teams the world over need to continue to be laser focused on unlikely events. My leader asked me 
the other day, do you think we should hire a game theorist? And I said, yes, <laughs> I think we should. Somebody whose job is to think about unusual scenarios that could unfold. You know, people always say there's a common idiom, right? It's the thing you don't expect that comes back to bite you. Sure. I think it would be advisable to, to continuously think about the thing that you hadn't thought of. Of course. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that's obviously incredibly difficult to do. But, you know, the one thing that we know, the attack surface keeps getting bigger and they're going to keep the threat actors are going to keep getting more creative, right? A lot of major intrusions that you read about in blogs, I believe, don't often involve the thing that would have been in your risk management framework. And so I think creative thinking about what might happen is really important. And then the last thing I'll say in my crystal ball is this is a hard job for security teams, high pressure job. And, you know, the encouragement that I would give into the future for security teams is to consider that perfection is not the expectation, that our goal is not to prevent all bad things from ever happening. That's impossible. Three men broke out of Alcatraz. And so if people can build it, other people can unbuild it. That the expectation that you need to have for yourself in the future is not perfection, but it's that you will do your utmost every day to keep people safe and feel good about that at the end of the day. I worry about burnout in security teams. And I think it's important that we as security teams um, consider what the real expectation of us is here. It's to do everything in our power, not to be perfect. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it was your first podcast, you said, and I think you did a terrific job. I think we'll have you back, uh, but I really appreciate it. Uh, ben Vaughn, Senior VP, CISO at Hyatt. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. We're now joined by the RHI Saxon, Lee Clark. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you're a regular here, obviously. Uh, every other uh, episode, you give us the briefing on threat trends, but this is a special briefing this time, right, Lee? Yeah, uh, we're doing something uh, a little bit different for the day that's going to be interesting and I think pretty valuable for the community. Tell us what that is. So we just released uh, our most recent uh, RHISAC Intelligence Trends Summary, uh, which takes a look at the year's trending intelligence reports according to a four-month period. So we look at one for January and April, then we look one for uh, May to September, and then we look at one for October to the end of the year. Right. So this report that was just published would be, one could say, the first trimester. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, let's hear what it had to say. All right. So for this report, uh, I want to preface this uh, with 
the data we gathered for this report is a little bit different, uh, and in my opinion, a little bit better uh, than we've done in the past. We had a little bit of a process improvement. Uh, some of the trends we are now able to track more closely and miss. People who have been following the podcast will know that uh, the RHISAC has been doing a lot of work with uh, honing, maintaining, and improving our MISP instance that we use for our community. And one of the benefits of that is now I have better, more granular, more holistic data sets to look at what threats we see facing the uh, retail and hospitality sectors. Um, so the data I have for this one is in a little bit of a different format than on the data in these pieces we've published in the past, but I think overall it's a, it's an improvement. It gives a better and deeper look into uh, the threats we see. Right. Excellent. So what did you find? Uh, so we, we found a couple of key trends continuing and, and one or two that uh, shifted a little bit, right? Uh, so... In terms of malware, right, uh, the, the TLDR for the report is that Agent Tesla is one of the most prevalent threats in terms of malware reported by the community. Emotet has reemerged after falling off during some of the previous reporting periods, probably because Emotet activity tends to come in waves and then recedes, and then a new wave begins. Uh, some familiar threats that the community is well aware of, like uh, Iced ID and QBot, remain steady but lower level uh, than Agent Tesla and Emotet. And then key tactics leveraged against the community as well. In the past, I haven't been able to track these, but now I can. So when we say tactics, we're talking about uh, specifically MITRE, tactics, techniques, and procedures, right? TTPs from MITRE. Uh, the primary things we find there are spear phishing links and attachments, and then imposter and malicious domains are the most common things our members report. The report is divided into three sections. Uh, the first section is on sharing trends. The second section is on MISP trends specifically. And the third uh, section is on our research and education team and the reporting that they've been doing for the community. So the first section on sharing trends can be best described as what types of threats were shared across all of the RHI SAC sharing platforms. That's everything. That's uh, people emailing us to let us know things. That's the member exchange. That's Slack discussions. That's MISP. That's every sharing platform. From what we gather from all sharing platforms, phishing in general uh, emerges as the most common threat at 55% up from 31% the previous period. And that moved from the second most prominent threat for last year uh, to the uh, most common threat that we see reported. Credential harvesting reporting, though, this is interesting for me. This three-month period, when compared to the prior three-month period, credential harvesting fell significantly. For this period, credential harvesting is 16%, and that's down from 53% last uh, period. So that's a, it's a significant marked drop that we see in, in credential harvesting. In third and fourth place are general ransomware threats at 5%. Um, compared to the previous reporting period in which uh, Sock Gaulish came in at 5% and Agent Tesla came in at 4%, right? So Agent Tesla reporting uh, has absolutely skyrocketed uh, for the current period as well. 
for this period, uh, agent Tesla reporting overall comes in at 2%, but that's a little bit of a misnomer because this looks at all uh, sharing across every platform. Uh, so when we look at the MISP trends of what technical indicators get shared, that, that spikes a little bit higher. Uh, Sock Gaulish, interestingly enough, for this particular period, did not make the top list uh, at all. Even though we do see Sock Gaulish reporting fairly prevalently, that shows that across the entirety of our sharing platforms, the diversity and the breadth of topics that members discuss, that some of the things that we know are the key threats that we see in terms of technical indicators don't always end up being the key things that members are discussing, asking about, and sharing overall, right? A couple of notable trends for this period that are different from previous ones is uh, business email compromise reporting came up to 3%, making it appear on our, our radar for some of the top threats, as well as OneNote documents and chat GPT. OneNote documents being obviously related to Microsoft's big decision to disable macros, right? And threat actors largely pivoting to OneNote as a way to get around that. And then chat GPT obviously being the famous uh, machine learning AI tool um, that's become incredibly popular uh, across the web for a number of things. Interesting, for chat GPT, the threat tends to come from fake chat GPT plugins or chat GPT themed lures for phishing or organizations impersonating open AI telling you that they're chat GPT and then dropping malware once you click on something, right? Uh, so when we note that chat GPT and OneNote uh, are listed as key threats, that's not the actual programs themselves. It's threat actors leveraging the popularity or usefulness of those programs um, to, for their own ends. Right. Of course, I, I imagine we saw in the financial world as well when banks started failing and shutting down that there was uh, some some uh, threat behavior around that subject matter. Just because whatever's popular, they'll uh, or whatever's being discussed, threat actors will use that in their in their attacks. A hundred percent. And we saw some member reporting uh, on this as well that, um, especially phishing lures, fake emails claiming like. I represent X bank, and since we're being shut down by the Fed, uh, your account is now in danger. You have to click here to change your email and password and things of that nature. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's interesting. Uh, the same thing happens with celebrity deaths. Right. Uh, whenever uh, celebrity uh, deaths happen and obituaries go out through the Rolling Stone or whatever, you see spikes in those as well. So, Oh, it's fascinating. Or even rumored celebrity deaths sometimes, right? Sure, sure. The hoaxes as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so if we move to the second part of the report for MISP trends, uh, this can be defined as the technical intelligence shared by members in the RHI SAC MISP instance, which is the threat intelligent platform instance that we operate. MISP, by its function, allows us to more granularly examine uh, the data and parse the intelligence that our members are sharing us to get some kind of interesting lists. Uh, so from MISP, what we see on the technical intelligence that members share to us is that Agent Tesla comes in at the top malware at 43%. So for the January to April period, Agent Tesla represents 43% of all technical intelligence shared on malware, right? 
That's huge, right? That's nearly half of all the indicators that we're seeing come in are for Agent Tesla. The next one's come in far behind, right? Iced ID and Qbot both come in at 14%, and then Emotet comes in uh, at 11%. And of course, what we see with Emotet is big spikes in reporting. We get a ton of indicators, and then it disappears for a few months and, and comes back. Um, MISP also allows us to identify technical indicators where the attribution is high confidence with threat actors, right? Uh, now, anyone listening to the podcast who has a background in CTI obviously knows that attribution is quite difficult. So we're really cautious with what we attribute to threat actors uh, with a high level of confidence. And for those, the most prominent threat actor that we see intelligence attributed to with a high degree of confidence is APT32. Uh, the second one is FIN6. And then the last one is APT38. And these are all sort of uh, financially motivated threat actors that all have a high degree of sophistication and a high degree of prevalence. They're, they're some of the top threats and threat actors that we see not just in our community, but across the entirety of the, the global cyber threat landscape, right? Uh, and, and here's a, an interesting one that I like that MISP is now able to tell us is MITRE TTPs, Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. I'm now able to track those uh, at a pretty granular level and develop data based on which ones we see members reporting to us most prevalently. And these get classified based on the level of detail we receive from members, right? So the most common TTP that we get is spear phishing links. That's at 33%. 33% of the TTPs that members report to us for the January to April reporting period are spear phishing links. The second is phishing in general at 18%. And what that is, is spear phishing links obviously falls as a subset of phishing activity in general. So what it is, is the second one is less well-defined. Uh, versions of phishing, whereas spear phishing links is a really specific tactic used within the broader level of phishing. The third one is similar to that uh, distinction. It's spear phishing attachments. That's at 14%. So as opposed to spear phishing links, where in the phishing email, you're encouraged to click a link. And this one, it actually contains some type of malicious document um, that uh, contains a malicious file. And then the last one for this list would be malicious domains uh, at 11%. And these domains can be imposter domains or botnet domains, for instance, right, um, that have been repurposed to uh, attack organizations. And then the last note from the MISP section, and, and this is interesting uh, to see changes over time, is attribute types. Uh, we're able to see what types of indicators are being shared by members. And the, we use the term attribute because that's the MISP term for the type of indicator that we see, right? So the most common attribute type, the most common indicator type that we see are IP addresses uh, at 67%. Uh, we see a lot of malicious IPs get reported uh, by membership. The second is email addresses at 15%. Those are usually in the format of uh, phishing reports that we see from members. Then we have URLs at 5% and domains uh, at 3%. Those both get shared uh, at a high level of frequency, which is interesting that we see that number of IP addresses as compared to the lower levels of other things, right? That's from uh, tracking of 
malicious infrastructure over time and things like that. Um, doing reverse engineering on sent uh, phishing emails to determine origins and things like that, right? And that, that those IP addresses can be really helpful over time for blocking for membership, right? Then as we pivot to the final section of the Intel Trend Summary, we have a report from our research and education team, right? For the January to April period, memberships submitted 117 total RFIs and 274 responses. So in many cases, our RFIs receive more than one response, right? Uh, Our research and education team conducted four domain-related surveys over this period uh, that generated 64 unique responses. These included uh, a benchmark study, the 2023 Tools and Technology Report, uh, which actually got 138 responses. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't note that uh, a full report for the 2023 Tools and Technologies Report will be released for the membership later this month. Overwhelmingly, the RFIs that are given to us by the community are for security architecture at 36%, uh, risk management at a close second in 31%, and then security operations uh, at 17%. So the majority of the RFIs we receive are often technical in nature, trying to troubleshoot a tool, trying to get feedback on what tools uh, work best in certain environments or for certain uh, goals and key performance indicators. Uh, And then managing total organizational risk is always a a key RFI that membership is concerned with, especially uh, at the executive level. And then security operations comes in with things like uh, policy management and uh, best practices. So we also break these down uh, according to communities, right? So executive level, uh, CISO, CISO RFIs, generally break down according to 45% being architecture. So that's higher than the general average of 36. Uh, 26% of CISO RFIs are risk management, which is down a little bit from 31% of the total. And then 12% security operations for CISOs, which is down from the 17% of the general. For the analyst community, people doing the grunt work level of of CTI rather than the strategic management level, right? 31% for risk management uh, in first place, 31% for architecture uh, at a very close second place. And that second place, even though it's both 31%, is because of the decimals that are behind uh, the 31%, right? Uh, And they're, they're very close. And then the third one is going to be 19% for security operations. So for threat reporting over this period, we've had a number of topics discussed uh, here on the briefing, right? From the Charming Kitten APT group targeting global regions, uh, Mandiant analyzing the 3CX uh, desktop app supply chain attack, uh, reports on CTI for CISOs and cyber leaders, uh, Winter Vivran's cyber espionage campaign, and then the Prilex POS malware targeting uh, contactless credit card transactions. And I'd also like to note that during this reporting period is whenever the RHISAC actually adopted the TLP 2.0 standards, which I think we talked about a little bit on the podcast as well. Right. 
And then the final note that we made uh, in the intelligence summary for this period uh, is one that we've discussed here on this podcast and, and uh, on the RHISAC blog, right? And that's uh, the Threat Actor Profile initiative that we're running at MIST. So in addition to technical indicators being available uh, in MIST, we are also launching a catalog of the most prominent and prolific threat groups that target the RHISAC community as a resource for member analysts to conduct investigations based on these groups, right? And over time, we're developing these, we're adding intelligence to them when we find them, we're expanding them. Uh, And these catalogs include things like known aliases, uh, background information, brief history, uh, prominent known open source incidents that are attributed to these groups, known TTPs leveraged by the group. uh, As well as available indicators of compromise, and that's both from open source and from closed proprietary sources. And then the last one is data sources. Well, we're completely transparent about where all of this information on the threat actors come from. So you're able to check our math. Uh, if, if we put something there that's not correct or needs to be disputed, we can we have the ability to, uh, to adjust that and, and correct anything that we need to over time, uh, especially as new information comes out and we actually discover that threat actor groups that used to be grouped together as a single threat, turns out they're actually two groups that just cooperate at times. Things like that come out with threat actors all Time. We have the ability to adapt these profile catalogs based on that. Well, that's incredible. And I, I'm glad you brought up the threat actor profiles because if you didn't, I was going to bring it up. Uh, great. We keep coming out with new profiles uh, every every couple of weeks or so, which is just terrific. An incredible amount of data in, in this report. Uh, and it's, it's really testament to our members and their um, willingness to share uh, because we have a great sample size of, of the information and, uh, as you say, IOCs, TTPs, everything that our members share, to be able to get an incredibly comprehensive look at the threats that are out there at any given time. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so my, my soapbox that I always give every time I speak with members is the data and the intelligence that I am able to present to the community is solely dependent on the the quality and cadence of data that, that members themselves share. And the, the fact that we're able to get such a nice snapshot of the community with, with granular details is a testament to, to how good our members are at keeping the community informed and abreast of these topics, right? I always say that the S and ISAC stands for sharing. So uh, it's, what, uh, it's what we do and it's what we enable. I mean, we're just here enabling our members to share. And you'd mentioned a bunch of our sharing platforms, MISP and Member Exchange. Um, if you're a member and you're listening to this, you know what these things are. If you're not, you're probably wondering what they are. Always happy to have that conversation with you. Um, there is both a TLP Clear and TLP Ember strict version of this report. TLP Clear version will be on our public-facing website and Ember strict version uh, within uh, a password-gated area on either member exchange or elsewhere. I think you'll probably put links all over the place, rightly. Yep, 100%. Excellent. Well, Lee Clark, thank you very much for joining us again uh, for the briefing, a very special episode of the briefing, as we like to say. Uh, appreciate all the work you put together, not only for being a guest on this podcast, but for this report in general. Absolutely. Thank you, Luke, for having me. And uh, thanks to the community for giving me such great data to write from. Now we are joined by Dave Stapleton, the CISO at CyberGRX. Dave, thanks very much for coming on the RHISAC podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. 
Actually, you know, CyberGRX is a great supporter of the RHI SAC and an associate member. Whenever we go to your team for a question or for guidance, we always get a quick and valuable response. So thank you very much for that. And please pass that on. Absolutely. Absolutely. We enjoy it. So we've talked about third-party risk before in this podcast. Obviously, there's a lot of different ways to approach it, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about it in both the podcast, but also addressing it as an organization. But I'm wondering, Dave, from your perspective, what does it mean to be a business enabler when it comes to security? Yeah, yeah, and that's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's one that I'm kind of passionate about. I've been going around chatting with folks um, around the country about this topic. So to me, at its core, what it means is really being attuned uh, to the needs of the business and either limiting security-related disruptions or uh, driving security-related value, or ideally both. And I'll put some more words in context to all of that to, to maybe make it more, more sense. But when I think about security programs and enabling the business, I always imagine this spectrum, this really broad spectrum, where on the one side you have what I like to call unfettered oper- operability, meaning anyone in an organization can do whatever they want, whenever they want, as long as they think it's the best thing for the business, they can just go and do it. And so there's not a lot of security there. And on the other side of that spectrum is, we'll just call it absolute risk. So you've locked it down really, really tight. And probably most people can't do their job very effectively at that point. So somewhere in the middle of that spectrum is where every organization in the world should be. Um, and I don't think a lot of companies think about um, the impact that security can have on their business, other than those like really strict, like specific cybersecurity control type things. You know, are people authenticating correctly? Have we encrypted data? Right. Their minds immediately go to friction. Exactly. Exactly. Those things are going to slow people down or get in the way potentially. What they don't necessarily think about is how does security have an impact on your organization's reputation? How do you gain reputation in your industry and then retain it? Obviously, there's a concept of like not getting hacked, right? You want to have a, a really mature program that's effective and that kind of thing. There's also, you know, making sure that, uh, let's say you bring on new customers and they have integrations um, that are going through, you know, being a, a good, solid uh, partner in, in securing those integrations and uh, working with them. I think the, the security of the platform or our services or products that we um, produce are just table stakes. But what about the way that we communicate? Are we transparent? Let's say that unfortunate happens and there's some kind of a public incident. An organization can actually come out of those things with an increased reputation just by the way that they communicated and were available um, in the market uh, post-incident. I think another area is around something like a revenue acceleration or, or cost reduction. Specifically, when we think about third-party risk management, when a new company is being courted by your sales team, so you've got a prospect and they've got questions about you know, your security posture, being able to you know, really rapidly respond to those due diligence requests, satisfy their requirements, and let the sales process continue moving is a way that we can accelerate you know, revenue, um, even satisfying compliance requirements. And don't get me started on the difference between compliance and security. That's a whole other thing. But I will say that from the perspective of revenue, um, being compliant and being able to quickly satisfy those compliance requirements is, is, is very helpful. And then on the cost reduction side, there's a lot of different you know, options, but just one example that I've been talking about recently because it seems to be top of mind for folks is we can in- reduce cyber insurance premiums. They've just been going through the roof lately, but having a mature program and be able to demonstrate its effectiveness can reduce those insurance premiums. So there's just a lot of different ways that I think security can 
have a positive influence on the success of a business that aren't necessarily specifically around, you know, control A or control B, the kind of things that we typically think about. Right. So you touched a little bit on how security teams can work with sales teams or go to market teams to ensure that that process goes smoothly and avoids disruption in the sales cycle. How, how best can they do that? From a sales perspective, um, a way to make sure that that process um, goes more smoothly is really getting to know your sales team and making sure that they know you from a security perspective. So you know, I like to sit and just run through scenarios sometimes, even do some like role-playing with my sales team. If you get asked these kinds of questions, here's the most appropriate response that most accurately reflects our security posture or our philosophy on cybersecurity and that type of thing. So hopefully what we're doing is enabling our sales team to respond in the moment um, without creating another stage gate or another potential blocker or disruption. As uh, one of our former a chief revenue officers was fond of saying like every second is like a day um, in the sales cycle. And so you don't want to let there be any space or room um, for other objections and things to, to pop up. So a big piece of it can just be uh, equipping your sales team with education and, and awareness that they need in order to keep the process going and move quickly through those kind of security due diligence requests. It turns it into a positive as a benefit of working with you. Yeah, exactly. And, and just being prepared, you know, um, you know it's going to come up eventually. Uh, so one of the things that we like to do is just short circuit that whole conversation instead of waiting to stage four of a sales cycle. And when you know that compliance or that due diligence request is about to come in and everyone's kind of sitting around scared, like, oh God, maybe they just won't ask this time. We'll just get through one without it. And then that never happens. Instead of doing that, as soon as it starts to look like this is a real thing, have your sales team feel confident to go in and say, hey, I'm sure at some point you're going to want to do some cybersecurity due diligence or something like that. My team is ready to assist you with that. And what we'd like to do is preemptively give you some information that we think you would find helpful and may satisfy all your requirements without you even having to ask. So that kind of like preparedness and the confidence to be proactive in the conversation rather than just crossing your fingers and hoping maybe it doesn't happen, um, I think is another way that you can really accelerate that sales cycle. You know, so on the other side of the coin, and I think this is probably where a lot of our members might find themselves, new suppliers, new vendors are coming in faster than they can be really adequately vetted. So as a security professional at a buyer, how do you, how do you prioritize? How do you, how do you make sure you're looking at the right things in the right companies? Yeah, I think for this one, the key piece of it has got to be based around the concept of inherent risk. Um, so for anybody who's listening who may not be familiar, inherent risk is sort of the risk that is present um, before we take into consideration the specific security controls or the security posture of an organization that we want to work with. Um, instead, what we're talking about is how what is the relationship going to look like between the two of us? So, for example, when you know, our teams come and say, hey, we got to use this, this new vendor. It's so amazing. Um, they're going to be you know, just the best thing ever and really give us competitive advantage. Uh, we start to ask questions about what types of data will we share with them, what volume of, of data, you know, what industry are they in, what kind of vertical are we talking about, do we have specific uptime requirements, or is there going to be some interconnectivity that we need to know about. All those questions that we ask around inherent risk should provide answers um, that give us a score or some, some kind of a rating. And then obviously, the higher the inherent risk, the more potential exposure that our organization has. Typically, that means we're going to do a little bit more rigorous assessment, um, and it might take a little bit longer. But also, those are the ones we want to get started earliest um, so that we have time to get through. So for prioritization, oftentimes, I'm looking directly at inherent risk as a way to, as rapidly as possible, understand what all I need to go through in order to appropriately uh, evaluate this particular third party or vendor that's being called in. You know, some other ways that we kind of try to speed up that procurement process 
again, going back to training your staff, if your organization fully understands why third-party risk management is important and can come into a conversation with you on the security side of things to say, hey, I'm requesting approval to do this. I've already asked these questions. You know, I know these things are coming up, so I, I basically understand all of this, or I might even be able to submit to you that I think this is kind of like a low inherent risk because all it's going to do is touch this public data. That's all you know, short-circuiting the process and moving it faster. And then making things more efficient. You know, if we can build a program around procurement that's going to satisfy the requirements of many different organizations, so think about the legal team is going to have questions, the finance team is going to have questions, IT is going to have questions. If we can centralize that process in some way so that we're all you know, satisfying those requirements through one easy-to-use process, we're more likely to have you know, the requesters, just the employees that work with us, and be... I don't know if I can say excited about, but at least uh, much more likely to follow that process and not try to find end rounds, which has become, you know, in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, much easier with the advent of so many different cloud type offerings where all you need is a credit card and next thing you know, you're up and running. So making it easy and, and not cumbersome, I think, is another way we can make it all more efficient. So centralized, have a process, but maybe not entirely one size fits all. Let the human beings talk about what they know about the potential vendor and what the inherent risk might be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we want to balance uh, an assessment, right? We, we, we need to do some sort of evaluation of risk associated with a third party. But in some cases, that vendor might be only touching data that we find to be very, very low risk, um, low sensitivity. It's maybe something that we're going to publish on our public website anyway. So the integrity of that data is important, but not necessarily the confidentiality of it. We might be able to get away with doing some risk ratings type assessment. So we just see outside-in data where we're just scanning and, and seeing what we can find out about the sort of exterior security posture of that organization. And that tells us enough. We can, we can feel confident in that. Vice versa, we could have you know, full integration to our backend AWS environment with you know access directly to our production database, and we're going to want to go much deeper and with that, and probably want to look at things like some kind of a tested assessment data that comes from that third party and really have a more of a conversation with them directly. So you got to right size it. One size definitely does not fit all um, in third party risk management. Uh, never should have in the first place, but we got we got addicted to our checklist early on, unfortunately. Right. Checklists and questionnaires. So g- getting back to the encouraging business and enabling business, managing risk while supporting growth, innovation, it can be challenging. So what's your approach to this? Yeah, I think it really comes from kind of what I was saying at the beginning, an alignment with and an understanding of your business's strategy. Um, We can create a lot of disruption as security leaders just by not being informed of and really getting ahead of major business decisions. If you imagine Uh, let's see, a scenario where your company decides they want to heavily invest in the use of contract staff augmentation. You need need to consider what new risks will this kind of shift bring about, how those risks going to threaten the success of your company, and then subsequently, how best to prioritize your efforts, you know, so that uh, when these contractors start showing up, you're not scrambling to react to that situation. So I think getting ahead of those um, uh, scenarios by being embedded in and really understanding the strategy and the decisions that are being made um, is certainly going to be one way to stay out of the way and not disrupt when you're really trying to grow and move fast and innovate. I think some other things, one is giving employees a safe space um, to experiment and to innovate. You know, CyberGRX, we do a lot of internal software development. So we think about where can we give space to the engineers that they can feel safe trying out new tools, you know, some new open source solutions or software libraries, 
in an environment that you know has no connectivity to and won't jeopardize any customer data. So you know, given that that sort of open environment where people can feel free to just kind of do some wild stuff and see what they can come up with, this is supportive of innovation. I think the last piece of that might be uh, just considering if the kind of time and cost intensive security controls that you know we may feel compelled to enforce are actually materially addressing a risk. Um, or if we're doing them kind of going back to what we just talked about, we're doing them just because it's on a checklist that we're used to seeing, you know. I think that's another part of it. We we really need to take a step back and be willing to have a conversation about risk. And we might find that a lot of the things we're doing, we're doing them because we always have done them, but we're not doing them in um for the reasons that are most important, which is actually managing and, and reducing risk. I also want to go back to something else you kind of touched on at the beginning when we were talking about the, the negatives and the positives of cybersecurity, like how it's often spoken of in a negative term. So, so much of security rhetoric is around breaches, attacks, making it sound terrible and impossible to stay ahead. So how do you stay above the noise, focus on the things that will have a positive impact on a business's success? Yeah. So I think I, I, I want to just double click a little bit on the I think the background or the color of the of the question, um, leveraging FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, it, it's just going to backfire. It just will. Um, I think using fear, it leads us down some dark paths. It can erode motivation. It can lower productivity and creativity. People aren't willing to think outside the box because they're you know really afraid they're going to get their hands slapped. Or or if you if you're really preaching you know hellfire and damnation, they they think if they do something experimental, then they might like bring about the demise of the entire company. And it also sets a bad precedent and uh, example. We're teaching other people around us to use fear to get what they want. That's just it's just bad uh, from the beginning. And along with that, what we often find is people equate that kind of FUD-like mentality to this idea that no risk is acceptable. Um, and that's not a successful strategy either. First off, it's not realistic. No company that's actually in operation is devoid of all risk. But again, that just uh, limits that innovation. So as far as your, your question, how do we kind of avoid falling into those traps? Well, I think first, you know, going back to what I said before, security leaders need to really have a firm understanding of the factors that are critical to their business's success. And as a byproduct of that, we should know what risks are unacceptable, which things are going to cause us to not be able to be successful. And, you know, by the way, I think it's just interesting logic. If you've identified certain risks as unacceptable, it stands to reason that others are acceptable. And what we really need to do is be really clear about both of those and ensure that those acceptable risks don't distract us from high-priority security efforts. If it's an acceptable risk, then why are we getting wrapped around the axle about it? So but back to the original point, I think none of that's um, possible without understanding what the business is and what we're trying to do, what environment we're working in. So what I recommend people do is you know, have conversations you know, regularly with security leaders and peers in the C-suite or across different functional areas. Um, ask them open-ended questions like, what information does your organization rely on for you know the most for its really for its success or what emerging technologies um, do you think are going to give your team an edge and then really listen to their responses and bake that information into your security strategy the biggest example of it i think of uh, right now is you may have heard of this there's this thing called artificial intelligence <laughs> um, <laughs> about that yeah 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 so i mean if you kind of look around right now it's kind of fascinating to see how different organizations are responding to this some are just saying we don't fully understand it we think it's risky so we're just prohibiting it across the board no use of any of it at all in our organization and some are taking a more nuanced um, approach to it 
where they're saying, okay, well, what is it specifically that people want to do and how are they going to use that? And how is it going to benefit us versus what are the potential risks? So you can weigh the pros and cons. And I think that more nuanced, informed approach that's really looking at risk and weighing it against the potential for the good of the business is the way to do it. Yeah, because something like that is so such a powerful tool. You're not going to, and it's going to, it's so interesting to people. There's no way to avoid it. And so, uh, like you said, being more nuanced. And I guess, you know, looking at AI is kind of like looking at what's the next thing coming. So I guess looking at your crystal ball, we talk about third-party risk so much because I think that's really the next frontier. As our members and as retailers mature their own operations, the risks are going to come from third parties. So from your perspective with the companies you work with, are we heading in the right direction? Uh, what, do you, what do you see in the future for, for third party? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you related that to AI because I think that's exactly the direction that we're headed. The traditional approaches of using static questionnaires, you know, either online or, God forbid, a spreadsheet that's emailed over to somebody, that's just absolutely not going to cut it anymore for no other reason than it can't keep up with the scale. I mean, the average company is using like thousands of third parties at this point. And it's just untenable to think about trying to manage that just from a logistics perspective, never mind actually managing any sort of risk. Um, so what I'm looking forward to is companies like ours and, and others that are in this space starting to use emerging technologies like artificial intelligence to give us information that we didn't um, have before. You know, how can I empower a risk analyst, for example, to ask questions and interrogate a set of data that's just you know too huge for them to sit and read? There's you know 30, 90 page PDFs in this assurance package that somebody sent me. My God, that's a lot. But can I use AI and some kind of a large language model that can look into those documents and inspect them and say, oh, here's where the risks are that you need to um, understand to kind of really you know, bring up those insights or something that CyberGRX has been working on for a while and, and, and released out to the market just last year was the ability to predict how a third party is going to respond to a standard security questionnaire um, with a high level of accuracy, just based on the fact that we have had so many done in the past that um, our you know, machine learning um, algorithms can understand and based on a lot of firmographic data, so information about the who, what, and where of that particular third party, can make really highly intelligent guesses um, about how they're going to fill out the assessment. And we don't even have to contact or get them directly engaged with the third party in order to do that. So those types of innovations, I think, are the things that are going to propel us into the future. And that's all going to be around how do I more efficiently gain insights that are going to help me really measure and and uh, address risk rather than you know check a box somewhere that I did an assessment. Well, that's fascinating, and you know maybe we'll uh, we'll reconvene in a year or so and see uh, see if that that holds true. Dave Stapleton, CISO of CyberGRX, thank you very much for coming on the RHI Psych Podcast. Great conversation. I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Lee Clark, the RHISAC's own cyber threat intel analyst and writer, for the briefing. Thank you also to Dave Stapleton, CISO of CyberGRX, and of course, Ben Vaughn of Hyatt. Great guests make producing this podcast a lot easier than it could be. Let me know if you'd like to come on the podcast. Shoot me an email at podcast at rhisac.org to let me know about that or anything else. By the way, check out that new space podcast I mentioned. It's a really great show about a really cool topic. The name is T-Minus, and you can listen to it wherever you get this podcast or find it at space.n2k.com. 
You should also check out part one of that conversation with Ben Vaughn if you haven't already. You can find it and all past episodes of the RHI SAC podcast at thecyberwire.com. As always, a huge thank you to our own production team at the RHI SAC, Annie Chambliss and Marisha Treshnecki, and for making us sound good, the folks at CyberWire, Jennifer Ivan, Trey Hester, and Elliot Peltzman. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, stay safe out there. <laughs>